did you mean? Um, so now I can try my best to explain it. So for those people who were there, the first one, and I don't think that's anybody in this room except my wife, uh, so that's good too. And then you have to hear this for the second time. Aaron isn't here. Aaron would have been the only other person. Um, so we're going to be out of John 6. What got me thinking about this was actually uh, the very ending of our Song of Solomon a series where we had a time of sharing um, and uh, we did this with our Easter service and at the very end of Song of Solomon for those of you who know you know we've been in doing uh, this whole semester pretty much on sex and sexuality and so that's been exciting and um, at the very very end of Song of Solomon there's this line that really seems kind of cheesy and like out of a love song or poetry and it just basically says love is as strong as death and she goes on to say, you know, someone would be scorned if they got rid of their love for all the riches in the world, something like that. If you read Song of Solomon 6 through 8, you can, you know, um, be amazed by the beauty of it all. But I'm not going to read it because we've done enough with Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon, so let's just move on. But it did get me thinking about this idea that I've kind of had for a while. As a sociologist, uh, one of the things that's really kind of interesting is um, how much people try to take the theory of evolution and apply it to the social realm. Um, Social Darwinianism, or Darwinism as it's called, and it's really stupid and it doesn't really make much sense, um, but it's impacted the way we live. And so this idea of whether people can be truly altruistic or like self-giving, or whether they just pretty much live based on their survival instinct uh, and on the things that most benefit them. It's a really long, kind of raging in some ways debate in philosophy. Uh, about whether people even have the ability to, to truly like get outside themselves or if we're just all sort of trying to live each day in survival mode. Now, many of us aren't so much surviving in the sense that we're trying to find food, but surviving in the sense of, if you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you like have all these stages and the first stage is like shelter and security and food and then as you move up it's like belonging and acceptance and awards and accomplishments and all that other stuff. Well, it seems like what the author of Song of Solomon is saying is that she's willing to give up all of that stuff uh, for the opportunity and the chance to have this sort of self-giving love, which in her mind is is far better than all this other survival stuff. You know, um, it's fine if she dies so long as she's experienced love, and it's fine if, you know, she loses all of her money as long as she's experienced love. I mean, you see what I'm saying? This is almost like a cheesy, you know... um, rom-com or uh, maybe not even comedy, drama. Um, I was trying to think of one in my, in my mind, but thankfully I can't even think of one. Uh, that's good for me. I'm feeling really good about that. So anyway, but it got me thinking about that, that just this tension that we have between, you know, and I, I've often wondered, and I, I don't want to um, go into this topic too much, uh, but I, I've often wondered about the theory of evolution and the idea that so much of evolution seems random and is random. And if, if that's our God's way of almost giving us an option between trusting in, you know, that he's got a plan or just looking at the world and thinking, all right, yeah, that's pretty much just unorganized and it'll just have to kind of like, uh, you know, it'll come about as time goes on. Almost like God giving us an option to see two different paths uh, in terms of how the world works. And so anyway, that got me thinking a lot uh, on my rabbit trail type thinking about this really weird virtue that as Christians we're supposed to really love, but many of us don't talk about in very lovingly ter- loving terms. And that's this idea of self-denial. Um, and so I, I titled this sermon Joy of Self-Denial. I never title sermons, but I have to do it when I go to visit some other church because they put them on recordings and things like that. So the joy of self-denial. That Song of Solomon passage where she's talking about not living 
with the constant threat of death in her mind, which is really what survival is about, right? It's the idea that at any moment I might die and, man, i got to maximize my experience of life now, whether that means pleasure, whether that means leaving a legacy behind. Everything is about sort of the maximizing of life now, with the sort of threat of death over our heads. Now, many of us don't experience that too much because we're not truly afraid of, for our lives each day. But I would say the majority of human history and probably the majority of people who live today are afraid of that threat. Of death, a very real threat that within the next you know two weeks or a month you know they could die uh, for a number of different reasons. But this author would would sort of put death in a place where it doesn't have near as much hold as it would for the normal person. Uh, it's kind of interesting because I think you find that throughout the biblical testimony that death is sort of supposed to be seen as this thing that really comes in submission to God's power and God's control. And I think at the core of self-denial, and I'll, my intro is almost done, don't worry. Because you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like the entire sermon. Like, what is he talking about? So look at the time. Um, the core of uh, denial is ultimately being able to resist those survival urges and survival temptations in our lives. However we think about those. And I'll try to kind of uh, make sense of this in a moment. But probably the best scripture along these lines is what Jesus said in John 15, 3. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Uh, Jesus himself would say, most people, you know, might die for a good man, but not a righteous man. Which, that's a whole interesting, you know, um, statement which we won't go too far into. But Jesus placed this idea of love as being willing to pretty much lay down your life for your friends, this sort of ultimate act of self-denial. And it wasn't about just being willing to do that. He chose to do it. I mean, it's not like I'm going into battle and I don't want to make light of people who've, who've died in battle because that's incredibly important for, you know, that they've, um, you know, died for people, their friends, they've died for their country. But a lot of times in battle, they die as a result of stuff that happens in the moment. It wasn't sort of some willing choice to say, okay, I'm going to do this. Jesus wasn't in the midst of a battle, the heat of battle. He chose to die for us. Nor was this you know, decision based on some intense hatred of our culture or another culture or an intense dissatisfaction with his own life, like we see with a lot of these um, you know, suicide killings and things like that. Uh, Jesus truly chose to die and then put that up as here's what great love or great friendship is really about. And so you can't possibly do Christianity without realizing that self-denial is a huge part of, um, of the gospel. And it's not a bad part. I mean, it's maybe not always a pleasurable part, but it's incredibly central to who we are as Christians. So I want to uh, read a kind of a longer scriptural passage here from John 6. And it's going to be long, and I'm sorry about that, but I'll try to like slow it down by giving a little bit of commentary. So it's John 6, verse 26. And this is a really great passage. It's a funny passage um, and uh, also a pretty serious one at times. So Jesus has fed the 5,000, you know, he's miraculously given them all this bread, and they're amazed and, you know, so amazed that they're like ready to make him king, you know? I mean, it's hard for us to get into a situation like this because if someone came and made us a lot of bread, we wouldn't be like ready to make them president. But if someone came to our church and like every, provided everyone a brand new car of their like choosing, we might think of voting for them, right? I mean, the elections are nearby. That's pretty great stuff. I mean, imagine throwing some keys your way of the kind of car that you want. Um, and that's pretty good stuff, right? This is really what he was doing. I mean, he came to feed them. In fact, John talked about barley 
and actually mention the specific type of bread to show how poor most of these, these uh, you know, fishermen were. They lived around a really pretty little sea. They didn't have a lot of money. And so for them to eat their fill, which is what they did pretty much every day, is worked for enough to just provide for their family. To eat it without having to do much work and for being then just provided and more than they could ever have, they were amazed. I mean, they were like, whoa, who is this guy? And, of course, Jesus sticks around and listens to their praises, right? No, he, like, jets out of there, walks across water, whole other story, and then ends up on the other side, which is where we're going to pick up, okay? So John 6, here we go, 26. Jesus answered, I tell you, oh, actually, sorry, let me back up to 25. That makes more sense. So when they finally found him, okay, they're still on their, like, bread high, you know, that sick feeling you get, you know, when you've eaten too much, but you're like, oh, but maybe I still have room for dessert. I don't know. Let's see what happens. Um, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're not looking for me because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So this back to this kind of same theme of like, don't so much worry about survival stuff. Work towards other stuff that seem to go beyond survival, whatever that is. Uh, so for, for on him, or, or he says that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, all right, what must we do to do the works God requires? Which is to say, how do we get this like eternal bread stuff? Because that sounds great. Jesus answered in one of the most vexing passages that no matter what kind of theologian you, you're, you are, or no matter how much you've thought about this, no one can seem to make sense of exactly what this means. It goes against so much of the way that we have uh, split up the whole law and grace and works and stuff, and it just kind of blows a lot of our theology out of the water. His response to them is, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Oh, man. Okay, well, we'll come back to that in a moment. A lot of us treat belief as if it's some moment, something that we did and worked for it, and now we're done, and we have nothing else to do. No matter, we don't find much enjoyment in our work. We did all the work that needed to be done a long time ago and now have nothing to do. But he says the work is to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, okay, fine. What sign then? Remember, this is the same group of people who've already seen this miraculous sign of his. Will you give us that we may see and believe it? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. So basically they're saying, okay, fine. Let's assume that you have this ability to, you know, give us this eternal bread. What miracle will you show us? And if, by the way, that miracle provides us some more bread, we'll be happy. Okay? Kind of give them a hint of what kind of miracles they're really looking for at this point. What acceptable miracles would, would, uh, would be okay. So, um, and actually I want to kind of back up real quick because all John is doing right now is retelling the story of wandering in the the wilderness. All right, if you go back to Numbers, um, uh, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, Numbers 11, um, really this exact story in John is just a retelling of this exact same event that happened in the Old Testament, which is pretty cool. Here's what Moses says. Um, about this group of people who they're complaining actually because they hate bread. So they've gotten angry with Moses for leading them out of the exodus or out of Egypt. And they're like, man, we had it better in Egypt. I mean, they were slaves in Egypt. They barely had food, but now they're complaining that it was actually better back then. And this bread that you keep providing for us, this manna, it doesn't taste good. It's like sour. It's like some of the bread that Ryan's been making at my house lately. Um, but that's okay. I mean, you know, you got to start somewhere. Sour bread. What are you going to do? 
And they're like, can we get some like meat or something? Because this bread diet is not working very well. Uh, and then their way of you know, tricking God into doing this, tricking him, is to be mad at uh, this and uh, you know, complain about this old way of doing it. Um, okay, so in verse 10 of, of Numbers, sorry I'm kind of jumping around the place, but Moses heard the people, of, uh, the f- uh, families wailing at their entrance to their tents. Actually, I'm going to go just straight to 21. I don't want to go read through all this. All right, Moses said in verse 21, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Here Moses is in the role of the disciples who kind of doubted that God would be able to provide all this for them. Uh, I will, uh, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered, Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not uh, what I say will come true for you. So, in essence, what, uh, what Jesus is doing here in this passage is just sort of recreating this moment. But one of the real tricks is you go back and read through uh, Deuteronomy is that in essence, Jesus is saying no matter what you give them, they won't be satisfied. Because in their mode of survival, you can never truly have enough. No matter how rich you are, no matter how much you provide for yourselves, our thirst, our hunger is insatiable. And so you watch this process in John 6 where these people, they just want more and more and more and nothing that Jesus gives them back seems to work for them. I mean, if that doesn't uh, you know, convict you, I think, at your very core, then uh, maybe you've missed uh, what the passage is saying. So, he's saying in, in, in Deuteronomy that, uh, you know, prophetically maybe, I mean, in Numbers, that, you know, they're never going to be satisfied. No matter how much meat you give them, they'll just use the meat and say, ah, this meat's, you know, overcooked. Um, I need something a little bit more rare, you know. Um, it, it goes on and on and on. So, pick back up in John 6. Hey, Brad, Yo. That was 11. Uh, Numbers 11, sorry. Okay, so John uh, 6, we're back here. So he says, you know, um, they they try to use this example of our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness in verse 31. Uh, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, it's ironic that they're using this as an example because it's those very forefathers that were not satisfied with God providing them uh, with, you know, enough... uh, uh, food and enough right kinds of food. You know, they got tired of the bread. So here's Jesus' response to them. Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. As you watch back in Numbers, when, you, when I just read it, Moses was saying himself, how are we going to feed all these people? It wasn't like Moses' idea. Uh, uh, it was God who was able to provide. So Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said... Always give us this bread. <laughs> Back to bread. They still want bread. But this bread sounds even better than the stuff they've already had. They're probably thinking in their minds, bread that lasts for eternity, that means I don't have to work anymore, so I can just fish for fun and not fish for a living. All the things that we think about when we think about retiring early and you know all of the goodness that would come from not having to work. All right? I am the bread of life, he responded. So you can imagine, I mean, immediately then this is like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. What is he talking about? Like, you got my hopes up high, I thought maybe there was going to be a miracle of eternal bread, and now this dude is telling me that I, he, his body is the bread. Oh my gosh, I totally fell for this one. I mean, think about falling for a scam, and I really want to mention a scam, but I won't mention one. Scam. Okay. Um, just imagine falling for a scam. All right, and this is probably how they feel right now. They're like, "Oh, dang it! I missed half a day just to get this bread." And this guy is so wacky and so crazy. Um, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still don't believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, which is this whole idea of self-denial, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. This is really encouraging. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Those are two verses you want to memorize. Those are really great. I don't have them memorized, but I'm just telling you to memorize them. Uh, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. This guy's crazy. We know this guy. We know he didn't come from heaven. He came from Mary, like the womb. I mean, that's not heaven uh he's a dude he has flesh this is just not going to make any sense to them so jesus says stop grumbling no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and he basically goes down and just says uh you know makes it even worse right he says um okay no one can come to me i'll raise them up the last day written in the prophets they will all be taught by god everyone has heard from the father has learned from him so he's making this you know this this statement that he's coming directly from god uh there in verse 48 I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate that manna that you want, and they still died. Just like you'll die when you eat the manna uh, that I've provided. You'll still die, because it's just bread. Okay? Um, But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews started arguing among themselves, how can we eat this guy's flesh? Like, it doesn't seem right, you know? You can imagine some really folks in the back are at least willing to try. They're like, all right, well, I'm hungry. This conversation has really tired me out. I'm just ready. Just give me a taste. Let's just see what happens. Uh, but for the most part, they're not into this. This is weird. 53 to, to 59, he just basically goes through and says the exact same thing. In 60, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who could possibly accept it? This is impossible. Really, it's impossible. So they leave, um, and then the disciples have their you know, shining moment. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. Um, and Peter you know, says something right out of the 12 or so times he says something wrong. All right. This is a really interesting passage, and there's a lot to it. I just want to make two real quick points, okay? First one is being fed is for babies, not the mature. And we have this irony in our usage of the word being fed, being fed. Well, I need to go somewhere where I'm fed. Well, I'm this, I'm that. But Jesus here is saying that when that's our attitude, that's our mentality, we're babies. When we need this kind of feeding that's sort of like feeding here and then a quick pick-me-up or whatever else, we're spiritually immature, that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's so weird to me that that has literally become the verbiage that mature Christians are supposed to use. Well, I'm not being fed in this environment. What do you mean? What does that even mean? Are you a baby? Do you need to be fed? Uh, most of the stuff that Jesus says is about approaching Him. It's work to believe in Him. Work for your meal. So what work are you doing for that meal? To be spiritually fed. <laughs> um... We'll get to that in just a moment. But there's an irony in that. I found a really great quote that I love from uh, one of the Nyback series in John, which I know you guys have probably heard a million times. I want to read that to you real quick because I think it's so great. It's pretty, pretty short. Um, it just says this. All Christian traditions, Protestant as well as Catholic, provide forms and traditions that are designed to feed us, to nurture us. 
Refugees from Catholic parishes have appeared on many Protestant doorsteps, just as Catholic ref- uh, 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 Protestant refugees have appeared at the monastery. Being fed by God is so simple that in a world congested with busyness, it has become hard to understand. Like the pursuit of joy, the more we run after it with strategies and plans, the more it seems to flee. It's not gained by ministry accomplishments or righteous efforts or the intellectual mastery of the Bible. Being fed by God requires a conversion of our thinking, a discovery that God is eager to give life and renewal to anyone who can listen in simplicity and in piety. I was like, ooh, dang, that's okay. That's... Uh, I don't really know the guy's name. Burge, maybe? Gary Burge? I'm just going with that. Who knows? <laughs> I, I honestly don't. It's the guy that wrote the John Nivat commentary. I'm sure you can find that pretty quickly, but the Burge just seems right. It's probably wrong. <laughs> um, so being fed is for babies. It's not for the mature. You know, in this modern uh, day, we have this real struggle, particularly you young people and those who are even younger than me. Um, your idea of like success in life largely comes from this, this movement, and I know I've mentioned it so many times, and I know some of you are so sick of it, but I'm just going to say it one more time. What's called postmodern yeah, enlightenment individuality, right? This idea that for the most part, I just kind of decide what's going to make me happy, and the most important thing I can do for my own well-being is just to sort of run after my passions in life. To admit who I am psychologically or sociologically, and if I can just run after my passions and accomplish what little I've decided I need to accomplish, I will have had a successful life. And, um, and that's a powerful idea. And in part, it's a really great idea. It's given us a lot of really great things, like individual justice and honoring the individual above just their role in a larger community. And I could go on and on and on and talk about the enlightenment and all the great things it did for us. But like any human effort, it also has some real downsides. And one of the biggest downsides of it is it's really made it difficult for us to practice self-denial. Because there's something in that mind of, of our mode of thinking that is very insulting, assaulting to our idea of individuality and self. When we truly deny something we want, something we feel we deserve, something in our personality type, whatever... Or called to something that outside of, of what feels comfortable to us, it feels like we're being attacked individually. And our reality, our authenticity as people is being attacked. That I'm not being the real me. Well, I want to give you another perspective on that that I think is a lot more helpful. And that is that I think in this modern age, we have an infinite number of possibilities for self-denial. The more we know about ourselves, the more opportunities we have to deny ourselves. We love learning about ourselves. We love personality tests. We love all kinds of things that let us know whether we're an introvert or an extrovert or a control freak or this or that. We just love it. We're obsessed with it. And maybe that's bad in a way and certainly has its disadvantages. But I think it has its advantages in that it gives us a whole long list of new opportunities for self-denial. And if this is such an important virtue... Uh, in Christianity, and it's such an important path towards, you know, really being freed through the gospel, then in our modern day, this is not a bad thing, this is a good thing. Okay? Every personality trait that you've identified about yourself, every style in communication and in uh, thinking about the world, every ambition and passion that you've been given or developed is a wonderfully new opportunity for you to deny 
if and when God leads you into that. I think that's a much better way of looking at it and looking at our faith. And I hope to prove that to you here uh, in the next hour and 45 minutes. So, a whole new opportunity for humility and trust. So, one of the things that, that our small group did a few weeks back, which was super fun. This is one of my, my favorite small groups we've done all semester, I think. And Chelsea, uh, my wife, led it, and I, I think she did a great job. And where we kind of did these, um, these tests, all of us did this test. And these tests were sort of like interrelational tests. It was like a personality test for how you interact with other people. And there were three measurements. There were uh, how much affection you give and how much affection you like to receive how much you include people and how much you like to be included, how much control you like to have over situations, and how much you like to be controlled. And, man, it was just such a cool opportunity, number one, to see how many different combinations there were among a group of 15 or 20, how many people God has created very differently, looking at the world in fundamentally opposite ways of each other. I mean, that's just crazy, right? Uh, and two, it, was, it made a lot of sense because as we saw people were like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense while you're that. And uh, I think one of the things that was really helpful for me because I, I tend to have blind spots in some really weird areas is I'm like a number nine, which is the highest you can get on wanting to control things. And I've really been thinking about this a lot over the last month about how many things in my life I want to control. For those of you who worked with me in the mornings on chairs, that is my field, my world. Nobody can get that right. I am the only one that has the secret of the chairs. And I don't know what you guys do when I'm gone. I mean, this place must just look terrible, but I'm the only one. Uh, driving. You know, I mean, I use this example a lot, but I'm realizing more and more a lot of my driving habits come back to I want to be in control of the speed I'm going and of how much distance I have in front of me in the lane. It's a lot back to control. Now, some people are not like that at all. They want to be given instruction. <laughs> they want to be controlled, which doesn't make any sense in, or make sense in my mind, but I certainly do like those people in my friendships. Uh, so while their way of life doesn't make sense, it certainly is pretty convenient for me from time to time. So this is one of those areas of my life I'm realizing I have great, and I mean great, opportunity for self-denial. And I'll talk a little bit about this uh, in just a moment. So, I want to say that the mark of maturity isn't so much whether I'm being fed, okay, but is, is whether or not I'm finding more things that feed me deeply. I think what Jesus is doing with this whole feeding analogy is not specifying it. We tend to think about it as he's specifying. Okay, well, you've got to actually get you know, food from me. In a way, he's broadening this idea. He's broadening it, saying that the work is believing that I'm going to give you all these opportunities in life to believe in me. And each one is a new opportunity to be fed by me. Now, we tend to limit those opportunities based on our personality, based on our current mood, based on all these different things that I think largely relate to our survival and our sense of feeling good about the world. Right? But Jesus is saying, in essence, no, 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 no. It's not about you first and what you need at any given time. It's about what I can provide for you in almost any and every environment in the world. So I think the mark of maturity is as you grow in maturity, you find more and more things that truly feed you and feed you deeper than what you originally thought they had the capability of doing. Being fed is not about getting into the right circumstance. It's about recognizing in almost any and every circumstance Jesus' ability to feed us and give us exactly what we need. The focus is on him and his power in that environment, not on our needs 
and what we desire out of anything. I didn't ask if I could use this example, so I won't use their name. But someone this uh, last week uh, did some counseling for, well, it was less counseling as much as just sort of a, a first step introductory thinking about anxiety. And one of the things that this, uh, this person said to um, them was, you know, anxiety is a lot like a dog path. For any of you who have dogs or you've been over to the ranch, like my dogs have like three paths that they travel down. And you can see there's no grass growing. It's just dirt. It's very narrow. And they have those paths. And anxiety is like that. It's whenever you get into a situation, your mind starts down a path. And you cannot release yourself from heading down that path. And what's funny about a lot of these paths is they're not the best paths in terms of the most efficient. They don't make much sense a lot of times. They're like rounded and like maybe we'll come to a curve or whatever else. I'm sure my dogs have their reasons. But once they go on those paths, that's just the paths they use. And they use those paths over and over and over and over again. And anxiety is like that. But our lives are often like that too. And our ideas, our ideas of what feeds us, what refreshes us, what you know, makes us feel alive are a lot of times exactly like those paths. We head down the same path over and over and over again. That's our path. And Isaiah, um, the prophet, talks about these broken cisterns of water. This is one of my favorite passages. I know I say it all the time. That they've dug their own cisterns in order to provide water for themselves and haven't found a drop ever. But they've got that path that leads you right back to the cistern every time over and over again. And I think what he's saying here in this passage is he wants to make new paths for us. That, that, in fact, maybe even not a path at all. Imagine the ability of just being able to walk around, you know, uh, without the path, but being able to enjoy everything around it, take something completely different. I think that's what he wants for us, and I think that's what maturity is ultimately like. It's about being able to go down different paths, paths that are scary, paths that don't seem like the right way, paths that, you know, require trust, that someone else has led that path, but I've never gone on it, so I'm just going to trust that that's going to work. Paths that have never been walked down on before, but are high grass. All the different analogies that you could think of there. But I think that's what maturity is really about. And thank goodness it's the thing that Jesus really wants from us. This is the thing that he's talking about when he talks about bread of life. He wants to open up our our opportunities and our ideas to things that can really feed us. So my second point, so first one was being fed is for babies, not the mature. The work of maturity is more about finding more things that feed you and feed you deeply. And I can give a lot of really practical examples of that. One of the hardest ones for me always has been just being around people. Being around people is just really stressful a lot of times for me. And more stressful, maybe it's more draining than it is stressful. And, I, and it's just so weird. I mean, a minister who has trouble being around people. Um, but uh, it's always kind of been like that. I had one friend growing up, and it just, this is something that has taken 20 years, really, of God's working in my life to even get me to a point where now I can really, truly be somewhat refreshed. I'm still, you know, like to kind of be myself and stay at home, but there's been a lot of change in my life, slow change, as God's been able to uh, teach me how to be fed from in these environments that I would have never considered before. So number two, our work is to believe. What the heck does that mean? I'm going to have like 10 minutes to finish this, and there's no way I could possibly go through that. I think this means so many wonderfully rich things. Number one, it means that belief is not something that we did. In fact, the belief that we had, our original belief, saving belief, and I don't want to get too much in theology here, but it's probably completely insignificant. 
It's about like liking someone because they look good and not having anything else to know about them. That's about how we approach God at first. Kind of looks good, looks convenient. Oh, here's a group where I have friends. That's nice. I haven't had that in a while. Here's a place where I feel accepted. That, that's good. That's great. But belief is something that, that grows and builds and deepens in its work to believe. We do not think about it like that. We just don't. We just think belief is something we sort of do, kind of like at a moment or passively or don't ever do. But Jesus is saying that belief itself is hard work. That so much of the key to the developing and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us isn't hard work, put yourself to the ground, you know, grindstone, what does that even mean? To be ascetic and to beat your body up, but to simply passively receive these ideas that God has given us. These beliefs that we're supposed to embrace. Stuff that still when we say it just sounds stupid and almost silly. The work is belief. And I think that this starts uh, like what the, um, you know, the author here in the Nivac series. It starts in simplicity. It's so much more simple than we think. We think these things are complex and we've got to do this and that. And we've got to you know, add this long list of things that we have to do. And yet it starts with simplicity. Number one, it starts in our brains. Romans 12.1 talks about this. It, it uses the word um, that we have to actually change how our brains function. That's renewing mind. It is changing the development of our brain. From the very, very beginning, changing our thinking in all of these things. So I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about what this actually means. And... Um, the way that I've organized this, and this is the part that gets complex, and I'm not really for sure how to explain, and so just do with it what you want to do. I don't know if it'll help you. I don't know if it's helped me. I think it has, but it's an idea. It's something I'm trying to kind of change my thinking on. I think there's an aspect of what Jesus is saying here in uh, John 6 that we pass over, and it's that we receive this from God. Uh, we don't work for it, per se, as much as we receive. It's this passive reception of belief, and we practice it for sure. There's no doubt. But it doesn't originate with our work or our value or our personality or our station in life. It is literally something that we receive from God, and we practice it. Okay? So let me give you an example of this. Uh, you could take almost any of the virtues in the New Testament, whether that's a, you know, a, a um, fruit of the Spirit, uh, whether it's one of the other things that we would traditionally call virtue. Virtue is one of those weird words that's used in philosophy to mean something that people have decided is good. But of course, as Christians, we don't buy into that. We buy into that virtue is ultimately something that lets us in on who God is. It's a characteristic that's fundamental to who God is, right? We don't, virtue has no value in and of itself. We don't be thankful because thankfulness is really great and wonderful. We're thankful because God himself is thankful, and that's how he created us to be, and somehow in the mystery of that, it works out for our best. Um, so I have two that I want to kind of talk about. The, the first one, and these are the two that I think I struggle with a lot. Number one is humility. I don't have a lot of humility. I, I don't know. It just doesn't run in my family. Um <laughs> Uh, but humility is a virtue it's a great virtue um, and it probably be best described as not thinking about your own interests uh, first but being able to actually think about other people's interests 
And I, I most, you know, maybe kind of compared to like arrogance or even simple-mindedness. Sometimes I'm amazed as smart of a person as I think I am, um, how simple-minded I am. How, and by simple-minded, I just mean how much I ignore of other people's perspective, perspectives or information and just go with my thinking on it. Uh, that's, to me, simple-mindedness. Well, if you're going to ha- be humble, you've got to be able to deny control. Because you know, arrogance is ultimately about I'm going to be in control of this. I'm the smartest. I'm the one that knows the best. I'm the one that has this figured out. My perception on this is better than everyone's. My station in life is unique. I'm in a place where this is justified. So when we deny this urge in us, or when I deny the urge in me to take control over something, it really releases me to be able to be humble. And a lot of times it's a baby step for me. It's being humble in a situation. But humility as like a word that describes me as something I'm still far from, okay, in my spirituality. But we deny control. And what we gain in denying control and being humble is a trust in God. Because we watch as, you know what, I didn't go with the path that I thought was best here. And God did something better than I even expected to happen. Something far better than what my path would have led me down. We gain trust. That's what I mean when I, when I mean uh, that so much of self-denial is about passively receiving virtues in our life. Just uh, you know, believing that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to just not control this situation. I'm going to have humility. I'm going to let God take care of this. I'm going to look for other advice. And I'm not going to just decide on my own how to take care of this and to do this. I'm going to truly be humble and think, you know, what's going to be best for other people? In this? And at the, on the other end of it, I gain a trust in God that in the first place, He had it figured out. He had it right in all, all in the, uh, all, um, from the very beginning. Another one for me, mine is thankfulness. I mean, I think I say thank, thanks a lot, and I am a pretty thankful person in regard to when people do things for me, which I don't allow too many people to do. So that makes it easy to be thankful. All right? But I'm thinking about the opposite of thankfulness here being an expectation for something. That I want something, I expect something. I'm restless, or Caleb used the word listless the other day, uh, which I really like. I like that, Caleb. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm not thankful for the, the, the area that I'm in, for the station I'm in, for what's going on now, but I'm sort of longing for something else to take place. Even if it's a bad something else, at least something different to take place. I'm an incredibly restless person. Um, and, you know, you just watch me around the house, and it's, I cannot sit still even at my own house for more than, like, 30 minutes without being like, hey, what do I need to do? I need to do that thing. And you get out there and do it, and I end up doing work when I don't really want to be doing work, and I shouldn't be, and I should be resting and whatever. That whole Sabbath thing I talked about last semester, don't do that anymore, really. So I need to figure that out again. <laughs> but when you have the ability to deny your own ambition, your own sense of success, and, and, and this is mine, ambition. Some of you might, this might be denying laziness. <laughs> you don't have any ambition. You're just pretty lazy. <laughs> it's not necessarily my problem. Um, denying my own ambition, I gain a real peace from that. But I deny having to do stuff, to, to worry about how successful I am, to show off the different things I've done. I'm receiving, again, a new way of thinking about this. And in return, I gain a sense of peace uh, of, you know, God. The whole idea of the Sabbath in the first place, which is still one of the most challenging ideas to me, and I do believe all Christians should have a Sabbath, not necessarily on a certain day, but just practice Sabbath. The whole original idea of the Sabbath was to remember that no matter how hard you work, you don't really accomplish much of anything, or really anything at all, apart from God. That is, you're resting for a full 24-hour period, the rest of the world is going on about their business because God's in charge of it. 
It's the whole idea of the Sabbath. That's all it was. was just to remember God's working even when you're not, and He's still going to accomplish it even without you. Your job is simply to rest in knowing that He's at work. So those are the two big ones for me. And I, I wanted to at least try to give you something that was decently practical. That when I talk about receiving that the work of these things is belief, a lot of it starts with how we think about what, how, who we are and what we're doing. It's recept- we're receiving these virtues in our life. The Holy Spirit is at work trying to re- change the way we think. Our personality issues and strengths, our, you know, our pathways, our styles, all of that. All of that is open territory for God's work in our lives. Now, I'm not at all trying to suggest to you that your personality type is wrong or problematic. Guys, there's, I, I'm, all, I'm a big fan of playing to your strengths and you know, all of that, particularly when it comes to teamwork and things. And we, just, we have to rejoice just as much in the strengths that God has given us in our personality. But it's when we begin to call those things off limits and make excuses for how we are that we fail to practice this amazing virtue of self-denial. Something that we ought not think of as bad and terrible thing. But as just one more virtue that we receive from God. To deny how we want to think about the things. To deny in our default ways of going about the world. Our default ways that make no room for God. I have uh, you know, an analogy here. I, <laughs> a couple actually bad ones and one decent one. I've already told you the wire one. I know you all hate hearing that crap so much. So let me give you another one to put in your mind. Okay? If you haven't heard that one, whatever. Just ask someone. Like, everyone knows it. Okay? So rather than this idea of projecting yourself onto other people and pretty much just using them, I have this way better analogy that I like. And I watched Rocky. And have you seen Rocky? I'm not a big Rocky fan, but the most recent one is awesome. And it's such a... I didn't even know it, Creed. There we go. Uh, I don't even remember how to... Never mind. I was making that joke. Um, I didn't know how to describe this movie exactly. Because, I mean, it's not just the plot that's so great. It's the acting and it's the relationship, particularly Creed has with his girlfriend that's, I think, really encouraging and great. Um, whatever. But there's this scene in Creed when he's, when, he, or when he's just first starting off and he wants to figure out how to really be a good boxer. And uh, Rocky tells him, you know, your worst enemy, he says, my philosophy in life is your worst enemy isn't your opponent, it's yourself. And so he says, oh, well, here's what I want you to practice. I want you to look in the mirror <laughs> and punch yourself, all right? And, you know, he's kind of like, okay, yeah, punch myself. He punches himself a little bit and he's like, okay, now dodge your own punches. So, like, he spends time in the mirror, like, I don't even, dodging his own <laughs> punches. I think this is a wonderful analogy for how we ought to live our lives. We ought to be dodging our own punches. That's, in in my mind, the essence of self-denial. Is knowing how you default, how you act, what your propensities are, and being able to prepare for them. And and dodge them. And you're going to get beat up by yourself a lot. And that's okay because grace covers those things. But at least we're in the fight with ourselves. And that's ultimately what self-denial is really about. It's about dodging the, the own punches that we're doing. I'm often my own worst enemy in a lot of areas of my life. But thank goodness for the grace of God that covers over those areas of my weakness. And if there's one real consistent theme when it comes to weakness and strength, it's that God loves to work through weakness far more than He does through man's strength. And time and time again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this is God's way of doing things. Working through weakness, not through strength. And so when we offer up those opportunities in our lives, those things that make us who we are... Uh, for God's you know, hand to, to really encourage our self-denial, something happens. We change. We become something new in, in terms of creation. 
And it feels weird, and our world would tell us a lot of times that it's inauthentic, but it's no, it's no more inauthentic than any time you're practicing something that you're not good at. I mean, if I decide to take on, you know, uh, basketball, even though I'm not very good at basketball, well, at first, I'm going to be terrible at basketball. There's no use pretending I'm good or just saying I'm never going to be good at it. It's a practice process. The same thing with virtue. We can certainly be okay with admitting our propensities for weakness. And we don't have to say, well, we're not authentic because, you know, I'm just getting good at this. As if authenticity is only like default things uh, in our lives. And so I think that same thing, uh, you know, ought to be in our, our mind and our thinking here. So let me give you uh, three real quick uh, examples. Um, I mean, you know, real practical, and then we'll end. I don't know how long I've gone. How long have I gone? Oh, my goodness. I'm becoming one of those. And friendship. Do you build friendships based on common interests in life stage? Which is easy for the most part. I mean, it has its challenges, Sure. Common personality types, all these modes of like basically just projecting yourself on someone else, these survival things, or you build friendships based on a common creation, that all people are image bearers, no matter how much older or younger or different they are than you. I think the gospel frees us to truly build relationships with people who are far different than us. I'm sorry, but many of us still are really bad at this. Whether you're in a church like this, where there's some opportunities to build friendships with people who are older than you, whether it's people who are outside the church. I mean, we're so bad at friendship as a society, guys, that, you know, we're just glad if we even have one, you know, one kind of. And maybe it lasts for longer than, you know, six months. And we're really impressed with ourselves. Um, But we've got to be able to build friendships along across those common interests and life stage uh, type things. And it takes a lot of self-denial to build a friendship with someone who's on a different life stage than you. That has a different way of looking at the world. But do you believe that they're image bearers? That they're people that God has really created with a common humanity as you? Um, because there's a lot of overlap and commonality there. But we often you know, choose our friends based on people who will project back to us what we already kind of want to see. Our church and where we go to church. Do we choose church based on common values and a common vocation? That Everyone in my church is a professional. Everyone in my church is Pentecostal. Everyone in my church is you fill in the blank of whatever common values we all hold. Which again, my way of projecting what it is that I already want to see here. Do we build our churches and and, uh, attend churches based on a common mission and vision that was given directly by Jesus himself in Matthew 28? To go and make immature disciples. Teach them to obey. That should be the thing that we're looking for when we look for church. Not whether they have the programs that we want or, you know, have the same theology as us. God forbid they have the same theology as us. Most of the New Testament was written in disagreement and conflict. If you're at a church where everyone more or less agrees with what you believe, there's no growth there. There's just towing the party line over and over and over again until you're pretty much irrelevant at our workplace. We look for people in our, our job that has a common goal with us and co-workers who have common goals. Or do we see commonality in some of the least likely ways? That, you know, too many of us, again with our jobs, I and mean, I'm certainly included here, have a real tough time figuring out how our work is important to God. We've got to figure that out. We've got to figure it out. Um, and I, I talked a little bit about that last week. Um, but I'm running. I'm done with my time here. So uh, let, let me just give you the worst example I could possibly think of for this. I was thinking back through examples, and instead of picking my favorite analogy, I picked the worst analogy. Um, 
you guys ever play with kaleidoscopes when you were young? Or even those little, like, I had one of those, I don't know, this might be too old, but you know, yeah, you put those yeah, things on, yeah. and you like picture through. We had like a Disney World one or Disneyland one. So cool, man. Oh my gosh. God has given us eyes to see the world, all right? Like, amazing vision. I, I'm on, on my medical app this morning. A guy had gotten a fish hook stuck in the orbit of his. Yeah. It's terrible. I'll show you a picture. It's pretty, pretty messed up. Um. Right, right there in the orbit. Boom. I don't know what the eyes, the different parts of the eye are, so. But it's pretty bad. But God has given us eyes to see the world, right? But when we just rest on our own perception of the world and our own psychology and our own ambition and desires, it's like exchanging those eyes for a kaleidoscope. The kaleidoscope's super cool and we love it, but like imagine seeing the world in the kaleidoscope. <laughs> that would not be cool. Or one of those things that just changes pictures, right? But we do this all the time. We see the world in our narrow way of viewing it. Self-denial gives us this amazing ability to see the world from other people's perspectives. And more than other people's perspectives, ultimately God's way of seeing the world. That's really what we're all here for. To try to view. We sing songs about give us your eyes to see and heart to feel. Or I don't know what those songs are. Um, Whatever. But it allows us, guys, it allows us to conquer this survival type mentality in our mind which means maximizing my own pleasures, maximizing my own life potential, and being able to see the world in ways that really allow us to love people and to love them truly. The joy of self-denial is multitude. There are lots of them, but I think probably the most important part of it is that we're really truly enabled to love people and love them for who they are, not for who we projected onto them to be. And I think that's one of the greatest things particularly for our relationship with God. So as we take communion together, uh, we have an open way of taking communion here. It's a little bit different, but uh, we'll have some people throughout the room that will have bread and some juice, and you can just dip the bread into uh, the juice. I don't think I really need to do a communion talk. I mean, I preached about the bread of Christ. So let's just uh, end with the prayer. God, help us to be people who really do deny ourselves. I think part of... um, What's lost in Christianity today is that we maximize uh, our rights and our sense of self-fulfillment and place our ambitions and our opinions far above where they need to be. God, just give us the chance to uh, really deny areas of our life that not just are weak or sinful, but even that are strength, that have strength in them and that are Uh, honorable, but to deny them for your sake. If you could come to our earth being perfect and still deny yourself to the point of death, uh, we know that you've given us that same power in us to do that. Help us to really rejoice in self-denial and rejoice in the ability that we have to get outside of our own narrow view of of looking at the world. Um, Continue to make us a people who um, really do Maybe not always love, but are willing to deny ourselves and our interests as a church uh, to do the same thing. And uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for offering us everlasting life. Thank you for being able to change our ways of thinking and uh, touching even the deepest parts of who we are um, to bring them in alignment with who you've created us to be. Um, We just honor you, God. You're good. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. 
And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.